It is good to see you all here this morning. Good to have the privilege of being here myself. Um, there were some people that were here at the earlier services despite the time change, um, but don't let them, you know, if, if you normally attend an earlier service, don't let them play that up on you. I think they're actually going to need to be some repentance for smugness on their part. Um, but thank you for being here, uh, despite the time change. I, I wanted to begin by telling you a little bit uh, more about myself. I, thanks to Pastor Rod for that great introduction. Um, but I, I, one thing I don't put in my bio uh, is something that when people learn it about me is a little distracting. But I do want to tell you this morning because it has bearing on where we're headed this morning. But the, the fact is that I used to play for the New England Patriots. And I want to tell you a little bit about how that happened um, because it, as I said, has bearing on where we're going this morning. Uh, when I was a kid, I was quite athletic. I loved all sorts of sports um, and played all sorts of sports. But back then, we didn't teach, when I was younger, we didn't teach about contact sports until much later. We do that earlier now. And so I'd never been exposed to contact sports. I played basketball and some other things um, until uh, a, gym, a gym class in junior high school. My gym teacher said, came in one day and said, today, boys, we're going to learn a new sport. It was an all-boys gym class. It was a little bit like Lord of the Flies, actually. Um, and uh, he brought in stuff for this game called lacrosse that I had never heard of. So he gave us, passed out some lacrosse balls and sticks and told us to go out in the field and learn how to use them to pick the ball up off the ground and pass it back and forth and catch it and cradle the ball. And uh, I just loved all this stuff. So we, for a couple of weeks, we tried to master the, the art of the stick and the ball. And then he came in a couple of weeks later with some boxes of new equipment and he handed out to everyone a pair of gloves and a helmet. And I put the gloves on, and those were cool, and they felt really cool in my hands when I held the stick. And then I put the helmet on very naively, thinking, I wonder what the helmet's for. Um, yes, it's coming, right? <laughs> so we, uh, we play a scrimmage that day, and the, the gym teacher said, get out on the field, get into a position that you want to be in. And so I got on the, the right, uh, the right uh, forward position, because I wanted to be in the middle of the action, of course. And so the whistle blows and the scrimmage starts and I'm running down the field and one of my teammates hits me with a perfect pass right in stride. I catch it in my stick, I'm cradling it, and I'm flying down the field for all I'm worth. And the only thing I can see is that one particular square in the back of the nylon net, which is where the ball's going to end up, right? I'm, I'm laser focused. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see this kid named Tom Cronin. Funny how you always remember the first and last name of these people in your life, right? Tom was playing for the other team in the scrimmage, and he was running at me very, very, you know, quickly, at top speed, really. And I, I was thinking to myself inside my little helmet, I wonder why young Tom is headed over here so quickly. <laughs> uh, and there was, of course, a collision. I would later learn uh, in a high school physics class that co collisions have certain properties. Two, two bodies cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Uh, and generally, in a collision, there are properties, uh, and the more massive body wins. Uh, I was not the more massive body. And it was not so much that young Tom laid me out flat upon Mother Earth, uh, but somehow he seemed to embed me in her crust. Um, I, th I think we call it getting trucked these days. Um, but I was laying there on the ground. Uh, a couple things were happening simultaneously. I was trying to reinflate my left lung, which seemed to have collapsed. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, I can't wait for the gym teacher to come over here and punish Tom for this outburst of violence on the field of play. I mean, that was ridiculous. So the gym teacher does come over, mostly to check that all my limbs are still attached, which they are, and I'm fine, actually. Uh, and I get up, and uh, the gym teacher, of course, doesn't punish Tom for this outburst of violence. He actually congratulates him on one of the best hits he's ever seen on a junior high school field. So this became the day I decided to investigate my junior high school's music program. 
uh, junior high school had a great music program that was in need of low brass players, and uh, so I, I ended up deciding to learn how to play the tuba, um, which I also had an affinity for, and that went really well, and uh, I actually matriculated from this junior high school into a high school that had an even better music program, and this is all in the, in the, in the late 70s, when the New England Patriots as a football team are so bad, and my high school band as a, as a high school band is so good, that we end up being the pep band for the New England Patriots. So on any given Sunday, you can find me at uh, Foxborough Stadium at halftime playing for the Patriots. There it is, right? Yeah. Uh, true story, actually. True story. Uh, and this was profoundly of interest uh, to me because, so as a result of this, I end up spending a lot of time at football games, professional football games, and then lots and lots and lots of high school football games. And over the course of time, sitting in the stands, playing the fight song, playing the halftime show, all of this stuff, I did begin to wonder, after a while, what it would have been like for me had I actually overcome my fear and, and gotten out on the field and been one of those people in the midst of the struggle. Right? After a while, I did just start to wonder if I wasn't made for something more than just sitting on the sidelines. And I think this was profoundly impactful, too, because at the same time, I was slowly making a profession of faith uh, to Jesus. It took, it took some time. I had a, a good friend in the high school band, of course, who was a, a Christian, and he shared his life with me in a very loving and gentle way over, the, over a couple of years, and I made a profession of faith because what I heard about this Jesus sounded true and right to me. So when I was about 18, I made a profession of faith, and I started going to church, and this interesting thing happened. I went to this little Baptist church in my hometown, and I would show up on Sunday morning, and they would usher me in and sit me down in the pew. They were so glad I was there. And then we'd all listen to the service, and then I would be walking out, and they would say, oh, Jim, you should come back tonight. We have another service tonight. And I would come back, and they would usher me in, and I would sit down, and we'd sit through the service. And then as I'm leaving on Sunday night, because it was a Baptist church, they'd say, you should come back for our Wednesday night service. And so I'd come back on Wednesday night, and they'd usher me in, and I would sit down. And it seemed like I was doing a lot of sitting on the sidelines, watching other people in the game, even in that experience, right? And what complicated that even further was there were a lot of wonderfully loving people in this church who were very good at telling me what I should no longer be doing. And that was helpful in a, in a very real way, because there was sin in my life that needed to be dealt with, and there still is. So that was helpful, but what I could not find was people who should now be telling me what to do, right? Because certainly, it's not just about not doing things. It must be about some mission that we are all joining together, right? And this became even more profoundly, this, this disconnect became even more profoundly real to me when I started reading the words of Jesus. I would read in the New Testament things like Jesus coming into the, into the synagogue in Nazareth and, uh, and taking the scroll of Isaiah and sort of reading himself into his ministry when he's about 30 years old. He says these fascinating words. We have them in Isaiah 61 uh, these days, and it's, this uh, story is recorded for us actually in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. So Jesus shows up at the synagogue, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads this, these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Bring good news to the poor. Proclaim release to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. This, out of the mouth of Jesus, is a world-transforming mission that he's articulated. 
It's a call to action. And it struck me that simply sitting in a church pew doesn't mean that you've actually joined Jesus on this mission, as important as it is for us to be sitting here this morning. Then there's this fascinating conversation that Jesus and Peter have that comes to a head in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus locks eyes with Peter and says these fascinating words. He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what does that mean? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell. Right? Perhaps when we, when we first hear this, we think, oh, Jesus is talking about a church that is so robustly protective of its people that the forces of evil cannot encroach upon the church, that we're safe when we're together as church. And I think there's some truth to that idea, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Now, a gate is not an offensive weapon, right? A gate is a defensive weapon. What Jesus is saying is that the inexorable advance of the church will crash through even the very gates of hell. This is Jesus' picture of the church. It's a robust church on the offense. But what does this actually look like in the world? I think we can often take statements from Scripture and things that Jesus said uh, that he meant for us to understand very simply and concretely, and we can create abstractions out of them. So I want to talk about this. If the gates of hell cannot withstand the inexorable advance of the church, what does that actually look like in the world? In fact, what would some of those gates of hell look like today? Well, as, as Pastor Rod mentioned, I work for this organization called uh, International Justice Mission, and we are a collection of about 800 uh, Christian professionals. Uh, lawyers, investigators, social workers, and other professionals that make up this team around the world that's 90% indigenous, 95% indigenous to the countries we work in. We're all over the developing world in 12 different communities. And what we're doing is intervening in cases of violence against poor people around the world. We're almost 20 years old, and over the course of these 20 years, we have run into some very vivid pictures in the world of what these gates of hell look like. And I want to paint a picture of just two of them for you this morning. The first is this city in the Philippines called Cebu. It's actually quite a beautiful city of about 900,000 people in the central Philippines. But when IGM arrived there in 2006, it was also a place of unspeakable violence that was being perpetrated against young girls. Girls like this girl, Chirito. Chirito, like uh, so many of our clients, we met her back in 2006, and like so many kids in the developing world from an early age, she felt this heavy burden to help her extremely impoverished family. So she left school, during elementary school she dropped out, and she started taking on odd jobs to try to financially support her family. Things like babysitting, things like helping her mom with doing other people's laundry so the family could have a little extra income. And then finally she ended up landing a, a job as a work-in living nanny and maid, a live-in working nanny and maid. Um, and at first this was fine, but after a few months her employer just simply stopped paying her and then refused to let her go. So she had to continue to work for no wage and was trapped inside this woman's house. And this woman can do this to Chirito simply because Chirito is so vulnerable and she has no recourse. She was desperate to get out, of course, and it was during this time of desperation that Chirito met another woman. It was a woman who promised she could get Chirito a good job in Cebu, where she could support herself and then send some money back to her family as well. So Chirito jumped at the chance to get out of her very difficult situation. But this woman didn't end up having Chirito's best at heart. In fact, this woman was a trafficker. She recruited, she preyed upon girls just like Chirito, girls who were too young to work officially but were in desperate need of money. And so when Chirito went, ran away and went to find this woman, she was actually then trafficked by this woman into a bar 
in Cebu, and she was horrified to learn that she would be required to serve more than just drinks to the customers in the bar, because in fact it was a commercial sex establishment. And so night after night then, her situation goes from bad to worse as she's sold to customer after customer in the bar with no end in sight. UNICEF tells us that somewhere between 800,000 to a million new women and children are sold into this kind of commercial sexual exploitation every year. The question for us this morning is, what does the Church of Jesus have to say about this kind of hell on earth? What does the call of Jesus have to say about this sort of suffering? Or what about Rahman and his family? Rahman is actually a third-generation slave. Both his father and his grandfather were also slaves. Rahman was forced to drop out of school in fourth grade simply to work in a rice mill. So ever since he can remember, he's been working 18-hour days, boiling, raking, drying, bagging, and stacking rice in the blazing hot sun in southern India. Now, this can be hard to envision, so let me show you a little short video clip of surveillance video from Rahman's rice mill, the rice mill that he's trapped in. 18 hours a day, making those big piles of rice, putting them in bags, stacking them for sale, and never allowed to leave the compound. He's lured into this form of slavery by a small loan. He was told that if he came and worked at the rice mill, He'd be able to work off the, the small advance payment, and then he'd be allowed to leave. But he was never allowed to leave. In fact, the rice mill owner has been paying him just pennies and charging him exorbitant interest on the debt. So the longer he works, the more deeply in debt he becomes. And if Rahman or any of the other enslaved people try to leave, the owner simply tracks them down and beats them. This is the life that Rahman is living with no end in sight. And of course, this is all illegal. This is by, by Indian law. It's not considered by law slave-like treatment. It's not bad working conditions or poor pay. But by multiple statutes on the books in India, this is actual slavery. And in Rahman's case, it's all happening because of a man named Mr. Kandasamy. Mr. Kandasamy is the owner of the powerhouse rice mill. And we know all this is true, the false promise of a loan, the violence and physical abuse that keeps Rahman and many other enslaved people trapped. We know it's all true because Mr. Kandasamy told us himself. Here's some undercover footage of an IGM investigator interviewing Mr. Kandasamy inside his own rice mistake. <laughs> 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 Mr. Kansasami is very willing to explain how he runs his business because he perceives absolutely no threat from local law enforcement. He's willing to be blatantly honest about just exactly how he's breaking the law and destroying the lives of Rahman and his family and so many other people in his rice mill. In fact, he laughs as he says, the debt keeps accumulating. There's no way he can repay it. This is how I've run my business for 25 years. Now, this kind of slavery, of course, has been against the law since IJM arrived in India years ago. It's just that the enforcement of these good laws is so often not extended to the poor. 
The World Bank published a study a few years ago uh, giving this astounding statistic. Just listen to this and let it wash over you for a minute. The World Bank concluded from this study, among other things, that 4.5 billion people in our world, 4.5 billion out of 7 billion in our world, live outside of the reach of the rule of law. So just let that wash over you for a second. If you live outside of the reach of the rule of law, like Chirito does, like Rahman does, then your basic problem when you wake up in the morning is that you are not safe. You don't wake up thinking about clean water. You don't wake up thinking about finding enough food. You wake up wishing someone would stop the abuse. This means that for millions of the world's poorest, this is their predicament. They wake up unsafe and wish for someone to stop the abuse. And the scale of the problem is actually enormous. In fact, the Walk Free Foundation out of Australia publishes something called the Global Slavery Index every few years. And their most recent estimate is that in today's world, there are 35.8 million slaves. That's more than at any other time in human history. And of these 35.8 million, it's estimated that somewhere around 14 million of them, almost half, live in the country of India alone. And again, the question for us this morning is, what does the mission of Jesus have to do with an abuse like this? What does the church inaugurated by Jesus have to say about this kind of hell on earth that Ramon and Chirito and millions of others are experiencing every single day? Well, for those of us that take the word of God seriously, there can be no doubt. Both testaments of our Bible make abundantly clear that God is passionate about this kind of injustice and wants it to stop. In fact, Irish Old Testament scholar Christopher J.H. Wright said this about the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks to the issue of injustice more frequently than any other issue save idolatry. He goes on to say that every biblical genre speaks to the issue of injustice. There is not a part of the Bible that does not deal with this issue of injustice. Uh, we heard Micah 6.8 from Pastor Rod this morning. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, many of us have had that on a calendar at one point in our lives. A lot of us can probably say it by heart, but it starts to ring a little bit more loudly in the context of stories of this kind of abuse, like many passages of the scriptures do. Take uh, some of David's psalms, for example. Psalm 3510 says this fascinating thing. David, ever the poet, is trying to say something new and real and true about the nature of the God that he loves and serves. So he says this, All my bones will say, it's like saying I'm going to cry out from the depths of my being. All my bones will say, O Lord, who is like you? You deliver the weak from those too strong for them, the weak and needy from those who despoil them. God is passionate about this kind of injustice and wants it to stop. And this, in fact, is one of the things that distinguishes him from any other God you could ever hear about. Isaiah, at the beginning of his great work of prophecy, writes this to the people of God. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The prophet's picture of the people of God was a remarkably robust picture. Jesus' picture of the church is a remarkably vibrant, courageous body that is light even and perhaps especially in the deepest darkness found on planet Earth. It's a church that brings good news to the poor, that proclaims release for the captive, recovery of sight for the blind, that lets the oppressed go free. It's a church that the gates of hell simply cannot withstand. 
We're so convinced that this is the, the, the actual true nature of the church that a couple years ago we wrote this book called The Just Church that talks about God's passion for justice and what it looks like when churches actually answer the call, answer the invitation, and step out. The first half of the book is a whole bunch of stories about this, this kind of abuse and, and why it actually matters to our God, why God's DNA, in God's DNA, you find this injustice, this passion for injustice, and why it ought to be in our DNA as well. And then the second half is just a bunch of stories of what it looks like when churches engage, how they found meaningful engagement in this issue around the corner and around the world. So if we're sitting here this morning wanting our light to shine a little bit brighter, then perhaps one of the things all of this means is that we simply need to take a few steps closer to the darkness. This is what my colleagues in IJM do around the world every day. This is why I can tell you and ch that Chirito is no longer being raped every single night, because my colleagues around the world, my colleagues in the Philippines, have shown up on her behalf. So she's not in that bar anymore. In fact, she's on the verge of graduating from university with a degree in social work. She's looking forward expectantly to helping others the way she was helped. She was rescued very early on as IJM was showing up in the Philippines, and the rescue itself was difficult. But what was even more difficult for Chirito was the recovery. How does one go about dealing with that kind of trauma and coming out on the positive end to a life where you desire to serve others? We have a, a, a wonderful um, director of aftercare in the Philippines named May, and May worked with Chirito to the point where Chirito was able to lean in deeply to healing from this traumatic abuse that she suffered. And that was the point, Chirito says, when her life started to change. She went on to say, I have learned that God rescued me. In the past, I felt that everyone was bad, and I felt hopeless. But God brought good people into my life to show me that he loves me. So now Trito is part of an IGM program called the Smart Mentorship Program, where she's been trained actually to walk with other survivors who've been recently rescued from the same kind of abuse. And she actually gets to be uh, a consolation to them in the midst of their, of their trying to heal. This is all part of huge strides that were made in the Philippines. We actually showed up in the Philippines as a result of a grant from the Gates Foundation. And what we were seeking to do was to rescue girls just like Chirito. We wanted to rescue about 100 or 150 of them in about four years. We wanted to put some of the traffickers in jail. And we said to the Gates Foundation, we think if we can do that, if we can accomplish those two simple things, not so simple actually, but those two things, uh, over the course of four years that what we'll see is a reduction of 20% in the level of victimization of minors in the brothel systems in Cebu. There will be a lasting impact of that kind of work. And so they said, okay, they gave us the money for those four years of operations, and we ran operations for four years. Torito and many others were rescued. We did hit all the individual goals, and when it came time to assess the level of impact, a third-party group of criminologists said it wasn't a 20% reduction that had been achieved. It was actually a 79% reduction and the number of girls, the number of children that were involved in the brothel systems in, in Cebu. To the glory of God, when the church shows up, things change. I'm also thrilled to tell you that Ramon and his family are no longer enslaved in the powerhouse rice mill. My friends uh, and colleagues in IJAM's office in Chennai, India, were able to carefully document the illicit abuse that, that Ramon and his family and the others were experiencing. The team then presented this evidence to local law enforcement who was compelled to act. And so in an IJAM-assisted operation, Rahman and 34 other children, women, and men were rescued. They were granted official release certificates by the Indian government that canceled their inflated debts. 
This document, this release certificate, is their own emancipation proclamation that declares their freedom and entitles them to resettle back in their native community. And I'm happy to report that Rahman and his family are thriving. This is a picture of the day they got their goat. Um, and what I love is this little boy's eyes in the middle of the picture, right? Because he's got mischief in those eyes. And what it signifies is that he's got, also got his life back, right? He's got his boyhood back. And that matters. Rahman's now working a construction job. His kids are in school. He's also enrolled in iGEM's leadership training program. And today, he's leading 70 other families in his village to petition the Indian government to provide running water and electricity to their village. But what of Mr. Kandasamy? Because if nothing happens to Mr. Kandasamy, all he's going to do is go out and find other families to enslave in his rice mill. So, my IJAM legal colleagues in Chennai spent years pursuing Mr. Kandasamy. Over the course of several years and two different trials, they actually pursued him. And it took several years, but Mr. Kandasamy was eventually convicted in a landmark trial. One of the statutes that was used to convict him dated all the way back to the 1860s in Indian Penal Code, and Mr. Kandasamy was actually convicted of something called habitually dealing in slaves. He went to jail as a slave owner, and he was sentenced to five years of hard labor. Rahman's rescue, Mr. Kandasamy's uh, sentence, and hundreds of other rescues and uh, successful prosecutions like them have led us to our knees to pray specifically for an end to slavery in India. Sometimes it can feel a little bit overwhelming, but the tide is turning. While I was in the Philippines, I was with one of our, our, our India investigators who was there to help out in the Philippines, and he told us of a, just, that just a, a week ago Wednesday, they had initiated an operation on an investigation he was doing in India. And it turned out to be the largest single rescue that we've experienced in our entire history as an organization. 564 women, children, and men were pulled out of a, a brick kiln slavery operation just uh, starting a week ago Wednesday. That process took several days for them to be processed, uh, but we just got word that they've been, uh, they've been settled back in their, in their native village, all of them together. These sort of rescues that would have seemed to us impossible a mere few years ago are happening on a more and more regular basis. And I'm here to say that in places like Cebu, in countries like the Philippines, and in countries like India, the tide is turning. The call is urgent, the task is massive, and the darkness is deep. But the tide is turning. Which is why I'm so glad that churches like Redeemer understand that this is precisely what the Church of Jesus is built for this kind of call to deal with this kind of darkness. For years now, you've been working to get off the sidelines and into the fight in this very important and valuable way. And I want to simply say thank you. Thank you for your support of IJM. Thank you for the work of justice that you're doing locally and around the world because it's immensely encouraging to me and my colleagues. And if I might be so bold this morning, I want to offer just a couple of options for ways that you can continue to take steps forward even this morning. The first is with some resources. We have this book out at a table out here and several other books uh, from, from the IGM, uh, from the work of IGM. The, uh, the proceeds from all these books go back, get, are fed back into the ministry of IGM for the rescue of others uh, that are in desperate need. But take one of these resources home with you. Read it with your small group, read it with your family, and ask God, invite God to continue to transform your heart and mind and to continue to wake up his church to engage in this, in this battle. 
There's a lot of good resources out there that we have. I'm sure there are other good resources the other organizations here have as well. Make a commitment to pursue something and invite God to continue to transform your heart and your mind. The second invitation I want to issue is to prayer. Because God actually transforms us through prayer and, and somehow, in a way I still don't understand, is moved by our asking. Right? So I want to invite you to pray for this issue. We host a prayer conference every year in Washington, D.C., where we invite all of our field office directors to come to D.C., and we just pray for them. About 1,500 people show up, and we spend two days just in prayer for these issues, telling stories about joyous successes and worshiping God for those successes, and then crying out to God for the places of need. And I am quite biased, I will confess, but I think this is one of the best prayer conferences I've ever been to. So I want to invite you to come to D.C. next April 20, uh, next month, the 22nd and 23rd. Uh, this is called the Global Prayer Gathering, and D.C.'s not that far. Maybe I'm saying that because I just came from Manila. Um, but it, it feels like you could get there on a bicycle from here. Like, so come to this prayer conference and be transformed. Join us in prayer, and let's cry out to the God of heaven for an end to slavery for good on planet Earth. And then finally, if you look in your worship folder, you also have this card. And this is my last invitation to you. I want to invite you to fill this card out to one of your senators, either Senator Stabenow or Senator Peters, so that I can take it back to D.C. and let them know that the issue of modern slavery and sex trafficking actually matters to people in their constituency. There are some bills, there's one bill in particular called the End Modern Slavery Initiative Act that's going through Congress right now, and we just absolutely need your help to let your senators know that this matters to you. So you can take the 30 seconds to fill this thing out, and I'll bring it back to D.C., and we'll deliver it, we'll hand-deliver it to the office of, of whichever senator you choose, Stabenow or Peters, uh, and we'll let them know that you actually care about this issue. Uh, and if you don't want to wait until next month to begin praying, take this card and just put a little P in the upper right-hand corner, and I'll know that that means you want to become a prayer partner with IJM, and we'll start sending you a weekly email, just one, maybe some, some weeks it'll be two, but not much email, just to keep you abreast of the things that are going on in the world, uh, in, the, in IJM's parts of the world at least, and invite you to continue to pray for that. Because that's, that's what it is. It's an invitation. It's an invitation from a good God who loves justice and who loves us and wants to invite us into the things that really deeply matter to him. Let me close with this final story. Um, I have three children, two, two girls that are now in college and a son who's still in high school, and my son is the first one of all of my children to join the high school marching band, making me, of course, a proud dad. Um, so he joins the marching band, and now these, the last couple of falls, I have found myself at a lot of high school football games again. I'm, I'm really there to watch the marching band, but I end up catching some football too. Um, and wouldn't you know it, after all these years, there's still that little twinge inside me where I'm wondering, oh, what, what would it have been like if I had actually been able to overcome my fear and get off the sidelines and get into the game, right? That's still there, actually. But this fall, I was realizing there's a, there's a deeper and more important question. Because as my kids grow older, I start thinking about this, right? At some point, God willing, there'll be some grand grandchildren in my life. Uh, and at some point, I, I hope that there's sort of a tribunal of them that forms, and they start, to, they start to cross-examine me, right? I hope at some point my grandchildren will ask me, Grandpa, where were you as they learn about the world? Grandpa, where were you when there was this epidemic of violence that was wreaking havoc among, among the world's poor? Where were you when, when slavery was more of an issue in the, in the world than it ever had been in human history? Where were you? Where were you when little girls were being trafficked into brothels? I want to be able to tell them that I wasn't on the sidelines. 
I want to be able to tell them that with courageous churches like Redeemer, I was in the middle of the fight. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, we are thankful that your vision of the church is, uh, is breathtakingly huge. And we are thankful and sensible, God, of your love for us that would invite us into work that matters so much to you. And so we surrender to you this morning, Jesus, and we simply invite you to give us enough courage to say yes to you. In whatever it is that you're asking us to do, read a book, sign a document, whatever it is, uh, have a conversation, whatever it is, God, give us the courage to say yes to you, to say yes to becoming more and more transformed into the people that you created us to be, and more and more transformed into what your vision of the church is. And we ask only that you would get the glory, Jesus. Amen.